start by reading Nehemiah 13, verses 10 to 14. Nehemiah 13, verses 10 to 14. This is Nehemiah speaking. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials, and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. And all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shilamiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah, Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, the assistant, because they were considered trustworthy or reliable. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and in your service. Perhaps the middle or center of that passage is when Nehemiah comes back after— he spent like 30 years— leading a revival for these, the people of Israel to reconstitute the people of God in Israel after they've been in exile. He comes back after 12 years of absence, and he finds that the whole thing is basically falling apart, including the center of spiritual renewal, which is the temple in this context, right? And he asks, why has the house of God been forsaken? Because not only in the verses above this, like we talked about last week, there was corruption that had entered in because of Elishib and Tobiah and all that. We talked about last week. But all of the stewards, right, the musicians and the Levites and the priests and the doorkeepers, and a bunch of different people who were in charge of like these daily, normal, ordinary, but really important roles in this place of spiritual renewal, they'd all just left. Nobody—they weren't supported financially. They didn't have any food to eat, and they just went back to their farms so that they could survive, right? And Nehemiah's really upset about this, right? Because he recognizes that um, this is what happens. This is how renewals get turned back around into declines, that when the vital stewards, the people who actually make things happen, when they get neglected, decline becomes inevitable. There's this, there's this progression of, like, corruption, and then the people who are in charge of doing what they should do, they just kind of stop doing it. And then the people that that institution is supposed to serve realize that they've been forsaken, and so they abandon the institution. And what they don't understand is, is that Human beings are the sort of creatures that really only thrive in the presence of institutions. I know that's not a very sexy truth, but it's a true truth. It's a truth that's been true about humans for the entire history of their existence, and it doesn't look like it's going to be false anytime soon. One of the things to be taken from this passage and from many other passages in Scripture is that sustained renewal requires reliable stewardship. Not sexy influencers, not brilliant technicians, not— um not invaluable bureaucrats. It requires reliable stewardship, just people willing to do their part of their trust, which is their task, in the way God has given them to do it with the abilities that they have on the authority that's been entrusted to them, and that they do it, and they show up, and they do it reliably. And without that, there is no prolonged spiritual renewal. There is just decline. A, a colloquial way to say that would be like, normal people have to show up for God's institutions in order for there to be sustained renewal. Normal people have to show up. Nobody leads alone. Leaders are not what make things go. Right? So, there's a couple things I need to say, and then we'll do a few applications about practically how to live this out. The first is God creates institutions for human flourishing. 
Um, generally speaking, we as modern people, especially as present Americans, do not like institutions. We think of institutions as like red tape, things that get in our way, full of bureaucracies, they're sclerotic, they're difficult to deal with, they have all these rules that don't mean anything. And a lot of the institutions that exist, we feel like have really failed us. However, God has created institutions for human flourishing. An institution is really just a formalized structure of cooperation. Right? It's a structure of cooperation that's formalized enough so that everybody knows what they're doing and so they can cooperate. Because here's the issue with humans. Humans are high-capacity, high-maintenance creatures. Okay? We don't sleep outside very well like deer. We, we take like 18 years to be halfway good at anything. Like, we're just like, we're not—we're high-maintenance, right? But we're also high-capacity. We can do a lot if we can take care of each other. And we can do amazing things if we work together. And here's the other thing. We don't actually work together all that well. And so for all of our existence, God has given us, and we have created for ourselves permissively, institutions, formalized structures of cooperation that allow us to have a shelter from the storm, an ability to cooperate with each other, and the ability to form ourselves in each successive generation, to form people's characters together towards the good, and to accomplish things in cooperation. Institutions are incredibly important. They're way more important than almost anybody wants to believe that they are. Now, all through Scripture, people are creating institutions, and there's lots of permitted institutions. We're allowed to create whatever institutions we think are useful to the ends that God has created us for, and people have. They've, we've created institutions of law, and policing, and military, and commerce, and advocacy, right? Special interest things where like, oh, there's this problem. Let's all get together to solve it, right? There's like guilds around people's works and jobs, like let's all get together, and like there's unions. There's all these different kinds of groups. And all of those are institutions. They're ways people have formalized so they cooperate with each other. But there are two institutions that are God's institutions of witness and renewal. They're at the center of what should be God-honoring human society. They are fundamental and unchangeable. They're instituted by God himself, and they cannot change until the return of Jesus. And those two institutions are the family— that which is constituted by a man and woman marrying each other in a comprehensive and permanent union, and so therefore creating a family. And two, the church instituted by Christ himself on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Those two institutions. Now, that doesn't mean that they're better than every other institution. The reason why they're foundational and instituted by God is because those are the institutions that God uses to form human beings, restore them, and to create spiritual renewal for all the other institutions. Where do we get the sort of person who can bring renewal rather than corruption to all the forms and different gatherings of human existence in which we're supposed to bring about cooperative goods for one another? What are the fountainheads of renewal? Because human beings, we corrupt each other. We corrupt all kinds of things. If there isn't a place where things are getting renewed constantly, we're in huge trouble. It turns out those are family and the church. Remember, even in Genesis 2, when God creates the woman for the man, right? So there's the man, and God says, it's not good for him to be alone. And so he creates a woman for the man, and it's a really happy moment. The man bursts into song. They find one another. They're naked in the garden. It's wonderful, right? But that's not the only thing God creates in Genesis 2. He creates a woman, and he creates an institution. And they're both sexy. And that they're both exactly what we need and romantically therefore given out of love and adoration that God gives to humanity. He makes a man because 
What good is the woman if the man and the woman don't have a way to love each other? If they don't know they're not going to be abandoned, if they don't know that they're for each other, if they, don't, if they don't know that they can have offspring together and fulfill the creation mandate in cooperation permanently with each other so that they can both feel safe and they can both feel known and they can both experience the joy and the union and the procreation and the dominion taking that is involved in creation together. The institution is as important as the woman. And you and I, as believers, can now allow the corruptive disillusionment of our experiences and how we have perceived our experiences with our corrupt institutions destroy our understanding of the romance that we should have of the grace of the institutions God has given us, especially the two he has instituted, the family and the church. And listen, neither of those institutions at this moment in this culture are in particularly good shape nor are most of our other institutions. One of the, one of the most well-read books in Christian circles about teenagers right now is entitled Hurt. That was the adjective the author used to describe how most of the teenage world is feeling about how adults have treated them in, in families. One of the ones read by a lot of younger adults related to dealing with their sexual addictions and their problems with dating and so on is a book called Unwanted. Right? Most of our minority friends One of the adjectives they use consistently about their relationship to the culture in which we live is disenfranchised. That is, not included. Right? And even outside of that, like, I'm old enough to remember a time where in commerce, there were businesses that held on to their name because the reliability and trustworthiness of their name mattered to them over the long haul. So they didn't want people saying facial tissue. They wanted us to say Kleenex. They didn't want us to say pain reliever. They They wanted Tylenol to come to mind. And so they, they protected those names as long-term bastions of reliability so that people would trade with them, right? As a long-time lover of Cabela's, like, I'm completely disillusioned because Bass Pro Shop bought them out and cheapened and destroyed everything in their stores, right? And this has happened so many times in my life in the last 10 or 15 years where you, I, I don't trust any names on anything. I can't trust commerce, right? In our, in our government, right, Congress in January had a 15% approval rating, and then they gave away checks to America for the tune of four trillion with a T dollars. And they made the huge jump to 35% approval. Which is just over one third. Now, the second thing is once we recognize the importance and the grace of institutions, especially God's two witnessing and renewing institutions, the second thing is we need to recognize that people showing up builds everything up. The existence of those institutions, the life in those institutions, what those can really do for us, informing us, renewing us, helping us, and sheltering us, is directly related not to the dynamic nature of the leadership, right? But to everybody kind of in the middle who has some kind of role to do something, those people showing up and doing the boring thing well. That's what determines whether or not an institution thrives. Whether they show up, they do it, and they do not allow corruption in their space. They don't go along with it. That's the question. And so we, we, you know, we talk about like national education policy. What matters is the teachers. Whether schools are good or bad, what teachers do in their classroom, how they feel, what they choose, whether they focus on their kids, that's what makes schools good and bad. You can have a terrible education policy, 
And fantastic teachers that are not inhibited in what they do and enough money to pull things off, and that school could be great. And you could have a great education policy and a space-age-looking building, and you have crappy teachers, and that school is not going to do well. And the janitor matters. The guy who fixed stuff matters. Those people matter. The janitor sometimes matters more than the administrators. It, like we pretend that the people who we see on stuff, the people who appear on the screens, those are the people that matter. Those aren't the people that matter. <clears throat> right? Like the influencers don't matter. That's one of the strangest, most ironic things about our present culture, that we listen to some of the people who are the least qualified to be listened to, and, and we think that they—what matters is, you know, it's, it, it drives me nuts. Like, go to your average household with teenagers, okay? My household is except from this illustration. Except, right? And you'll have people ignoring people who birthed, raised, fed, clothed, cried with, hugged, created a house for. And you'll have people watching idiots spouting nonsense to them— when the people who have given their lives for them are in the same room. Ignore. Right? No. That's partly an exaggeration. It's partly not. Right? And it's not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not picking on teenagers. I mean, like, I would do that too. I would ignore my own teenagers and just look at my phone if I just did whatever I wanted. Because it's, it's interesting. It's titillating. It's funny. These people are talented. It's entertaining. Right? And sometimes we don't separate very well entertainment from influence. And we don't realize that the people whose word we should care about are the people who have spilled their blood in loving us. Not the people who sound cool when they talk. And this is true for every institution, whether it's the family, it's true for the church. The volunteers at a church are the people who matter. They're the ones who make a church great or not. Right? You're like, well, well, doesn't pastor matter some? Well, those are the people who pick the pastor and who fire the pastor and who support the pastor so that he stays or makes life really difficult for the pastor so that he leaves. Like it's still, it's still the, everybody, it's the vital center of the organization, the people who do something. You don't, they don't do everything. They're like, look, I'm going to be a greeter. I'm going to be on the hospitality team. I'm going to have a small group in my house and I'm going to open up my house week in and week out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with those teenagers whenever we gather and I'm just going to be nice to them because being a teenager is hard. Right? I'm going to teach four-year-olds what I know about Christianity because that's about as far as I am in Christianity. But I feel like I could get to where I could teach the four-year-old something. Right? Though that's what makes an institution great or the lack of it makes it decline. You, what you do matters. You matter more than the influencers. You matter more than the technicians and you matter more than the experts. It is the daily farming, the weeding, and the planting, and the digging, and the watering that makes human beings thrive. The wrong people get the credit for almost everything in this world. Do you understand that? The wrong people get the credit for almost everything in this world. And if you fall for it, you will want to be one of them rather than what you're meant to be. Okay, so I want to go over just four things quickly about how we do this together. The first is, is that we need to be set in place and you need to take your place. There's this relationship within an institution that thrives where you and I 
have to desire the work of building up the institution because we believe in it as romantically as we believe in the, in the people, right? There, there is a, there's a way in which, for example, I know there have been times in my marriage where my wife felt more romantically about marriage than about me. Do you understand? Like, she didn't stay because I was so lovely, because I was so loving, because it was so good to be married to me. She stayed because she believed in marriage. She believed in it, the romantic nature of its institution. She believed that mankind and human reality was rooted in people binding themselves to each other and making it better. And in the times where I wasn't the thing that kept her in, right? It kept her in. And she believed in the institution until I became more believable. Right? And, and it was the reverse, too. And it's been that way sometimes parenting for the two of us. And it's been that way in the church. There have been times where I don't like pastoring people. And in those times, my belief in the church has supported me until I did like pastoring people. And what has to happen in an institution like this is both I have to believe in it enough to step up, and others need to believe in me enough to set me in place so that I have a trust and a place. And those two things have to come together. You have to say, I want to be a small group leader. And Aaron and our faculty and our have to be like, and we think we can train you and you can be a great small group leader. So that the people who come to your small group know that you wanted to do the work. And the people who they have given the trust to decide who should be doing that work said, I think they can do the work. And when those two things come together, when people are passionate to take up the work and other people are like, are willing to give you and hand you the work and train you and support you for it, and those come together, people step up and are set up. There is a clarity, a structure, and a vibrancy to the institution in which people can thrive. And so you've got to decide and say, I want the work. You have to turn your neighbor and be like, what work do you want to do? What trust can be given to us? And like, you've got to step up. And the people who are in charge have got to be willing to like give up some space and to affirm people in things and to support them and to set them in place and to give you that trust. And then we have to be able to trust the people and let them lead us and serve us, right? The second thing is double support instead of the double squeeze. When I was in teacher's college, which is what my undergrad is in, um, one of the things they said in one of my development classes was, um, being a teacher is one of the most stressful things to be in the educational organization because you're in the middle. And in any hierarchy, when you're in the middle, it's worse because you're getting squeezed from both sides, right? The administration wants stuff from you. The people above you want things from you. And they're not super realistic about what you can actually perform. And then the people below you that you're serving aren't happy with you either. And they want more and they want you to do things. And sometimes what the people below you want, what the people above you want are actually the opposite things. Like they don't, they're not even compatible with one another. And you're stuck in the middle of that being pulled in all directions. And it's not fun, right? Which is why a lot of people in Positions of authority in the middle of organizations have super high quitting rates, right? Burnout for teachers, last I knew, was between three and five years. Okay? What we want to produce in a thriving institution is the opposite of that. What we want to do is we want to make sure that those who have higher levels of trust and are in more strategic positions of trust, higher leadership, that they are supporting and they are empowering, encouraging, and helping people who've taken those trusts— and that the people who are benefiting from the people who are serving in them in those ways respect the work that they're doing, respect the sacrifices that they're making, respect the people who are serving them, thank the people who are serving them, and don't spend their time complaining about why it's not better, why it's not better, why isn't it better? 
right? If you are being served, say thank you. They didn't have to do that for you. They're a volunteer. And even our staff, I don't have a single person on our staff that couldn't make double doing something else. Okay? They're here to serve Jesus first, this institution that Jesus loves, and you as the practical object within that institution that has been given to them to love. They do it for love, whether they're volunteers or staff members, and don't make it hard on them. Right? I can't remember which epistle it is where it says about elders, about submitting to elders, but submit to your elders. And don't make it hard for them <laughs> to shepherd you and to love you. And so in a thriving institution, you have dual support, where those who are above you in the organization are supporting you and giving you what you need to be successful. And the people below you that you're serving in the organization are actually thankful for what you're doing. The church should be filled with that. Right? Where the higher level leaders are humble and they realize they're there to equip the saints, to help the people who are serving for their works of service, says in Ephesians 4. And the people who are being served realize people are serving them and they're not pissy and angry and upset and, and nothing's ever good for them. They're easily pleased and they're very thankful. And they're supportive of the people who open their house to them every week or to show up for their kids every week. And they keep that in mind even when there's something they feel like they want to try to correct. The third thing is appoint reliable people, right? It says in Nehemiah, he said, then I appointed reliable people. And he lists their names. And he's like, these people were considered trustworthy or reliable. You see, um, a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis now on creativity and entrepreneurship and people breaking new things open and making new things go. And that's really important, especially like economically, to create new opportunities for people, right? But in institutions where practical work has to be done, oftentimes the most important thing isn't really how creative you are, isn't how cool you are. It's how reliable you are. Will you show up? Like, I don't care if you have the coolest designer glasses that have ever been made, or you, like, realized that scarves were out a few months ago, or like, I, don't, I mean, I don't care what's true about you. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how pretty you are, how young you are, how funny you are. I don't, know if you, I don't care if you listen to the right jokes or like the right channels. I don't care about any of that. I want to know if you're going to show up. That's what I want to know. Are you going to show up when necessary? Shut up. And are you going to do the stuff that has to be done? Are you going to help me carry chairs? Are you going to help me wipe down pews? Are you going to be there for people when they need you? Are you willing to take this meal to so-and-so? Are you willing to listen to somebody talk too long because they're in pain and they don't realize that they're going on and on? Are you willing to show up and do the stuff and shut up and be selfless and actually serve other people? I don't care how creative you are. I don't care how cool you are. Spiritual renewal thrives when the people who are doing those works of stewardship are reliable people, and when the people who are serving them are reliable people. So the things I look for in staff people or in point leaders over ministries is, I want somebody who's a go-getter. I want somebody who's a good leader. I want somebody who's creative. I want all those things. Those are all great. But those things aren't faithfulness, and those things aren't godliness. And what I need more than anything, and what any institution needs more than anything, is somebody who's reliable. And then the last thing is that it, the leadership of those being stewards are submissive and yet unyielding at the same time. They're submissive and unyielding at the same time. In verse 14, the passage ends where Nehemiah says, Remember me, oh my God, all the things I've done for your house and in your service. Right? After, after 40 years, um, Nehemiah doesn't—he still doesn't even know if he's going to have anything to show for it. 
He's basically risked his life over and over and over again. He doesn't know if these final reforms are going to take. He has no idea how long the nation of Israel is going to last. He doesn't know any of those things, right? His, his main hope is that God is going to remember what he did. That's his hope. He's going to look on what he did, and God is going to count it as faith, and God is going to remember what he did, and then God is going to reward him the way he pleases. And that's it. And there's no evidence in the book of Nehemiah either that Nehemiah had a family. It's possible he was a eunuch because he was so close to the king of Babylon. We don't really know. But we don't have, we don't know anything about his wife and kids, nothing about his ancestry. And this is the result of all of his work that he's done faithfully. And in every case where people that he was in charge of leading tried to get him to give in to corruption, he was 100% unyielding. He did not bend. His forehead was like iron. Nobody could stop him. Nobody could push him back. He was completely unrelenting when it came to corruption. But when it came to his greater master, he was a completely submissive steward. And that's what every thriving institution that supports its stewards requires. It requires somebody, it requires somebody who is unrelenting when it comes to corruption and completely submissive when it comes to their God. Because anytime you have an institution full of stewards, people who are serving, who are, know that they're in charge of something, but they don't own it, right? They're servants. When those people are led by somebody who thinks that they're a king, it does not go very well. Because the king, like it says in 1 Samuel 8, will always take, right? You have to provide for yourself leadership that realizes that no matter how high you are in the organization, the institution of God, you are still a servant. You're a steward. You own nothing. You're in charge of everything. That's true for the highest levels of stewardship in the family, mothers and fathers. It's true for the highest level of authority in the church, elders. And so, as, I mean, you're going you're to be nominating elders in the next few weeks here. You need to consider who you're nominating. Yeah, you should read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 to look at the biblical requirements. And what you're going to find from that is that these are, men, these are men who know who their God is. They know they're not God. They know they're not kings. They don't do it for power or authority or to lord it over people. They want to shepherd God's flock. They want to serve those who serve God's people and those who serve God. And those are, the pe- those are the leaders you need to provide for yourself. Those are the leaders that hold your pastors in check and your staff people. Those are the people who are going to come and rebuke you when you're clearly in public sin. Those are the people who are going to shepherd you when you're in need. They're the people who are going to show up and console you when you're in doubt and when you're in mourning. Those are the people who are going to be your spiritual shepherds. And you, at least at a church like ours, this congregational, that elects its elders, you are providing that leadership for yourself. So you need to take it really seriously. You need to do a good job. And many of us need to become the kind of people who can be elevated to that kind of leadership. And how do you prepare for that? The answer is, very simply, you serve really well in all of the ordinary services of the institution that God has instituted and called to thrive. And then you'll be ready because God says whoever's faithful with a little, he can be trusted with more. To be an elder or to be in my role is— it's, it's not supposed to be about being smart or being able to, like, be a sermomatic or be funny or whatever. It's supposed to be somebody who has been proven reliable and trustworthy in some things, and so forth, they're entrusted with more, right? I just want to end with this because I feel like the more we look at Nehemiah, um, the more depressed we ought to get. <laughs> you know, just personally, 
Um, he was a, a very amazing man. He's one of only maybe three people in the entire Old Testament of which nothing negative is said. Um, and he led in, in really difficult times, very decently corrupt times, even though he's leading some of God's best people, people willing to leave their lives in Babylon and travel 600 miles to rebuild the, the people of God in Israel. I mean, these were the best of the best, and they were still incredibly corrupt. That just tells you something about humanity and human beings. It, tells, it should tell you something about you, right? And in this story, I would love to think that I'm Nehemiah. You know what I mean? Every pastor wants to be like, you know, I'm going to be the Nehemiah of my generation, right? I'm probably not. I'm probably more like Elisha than I'm like Nehemiah, Right? One of the things that we have to comfort us in this age of the church and in the institution under the head who is Christ is that the, the Nehemiah in the story is, is Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who stood up and took his place. God did not—God the Father did not send God the Son unwillingly to serve us. Do you understand? He stepped up in the divine will of God because he is himself God, and the Father confirmed and sent him in his providence. He stepped up and received, and was set up, and came as the Son for our salvation. And when he came here, he was under the sovereign authority of God to fulfill and finish his work. And at the same time, the opposite was demanded of the people he was serving. And we didn't like him, and we hated what he was doing. We wanted him to do something else. And he was caught between the truth and sin, and he bore the weight that was crushing him in, and he let the haters and the sinners tear him apart. And he did it because he believed in the institution of his own salvation and what he would create. And though he was frail in his humanity, he was reliable at every moment of its its execution. And every word that he said, and every miracle he performed, and every rebuke he uttered, and every motion of his life, and every prayer that he prayed, and every work that he did through the cross and the resurrection, he was faithful and reliable, never allowing corruption to enter on his watch, always willing to do the thing that was there for him to do. Jesus didn't do everything. He didn't evangelize Madison. He never went more than 200 miles from where he was born. He was doing a very specific thing. He didn't feel like he had to do more, and he didn't choose to do less. He did his stewardship. He did it reliably, and he did it uncorruptedly. And when it came to points where men and women sinfully wanted him to yield to their desires, he was utterly unyielding to them for their sake. For their sake, he wasn't willing to yield to their sin but he was completely submissive to his Father's will so as to die for them and to save them and to love them and to shape them and to provide for them forever. Right? This church will never have a Nehemiah sitting in the senior pastor's office. Okay? It's never going to happen. You're never going to have a human Nehemiah leading you in this life. You're going to have people not as good as that. But you will never be without one who is much greater. Who is your faithful high priest standing and watch over you, who is pouring out himself to you in the person of his Holy Spirit every day to be indwelling within you. Remember one of his last words, which is ironic because the passage starts out with, why is the house of God and therefore the people of God, why are they forsaken? Why? And partly the reason they were forsaken is because Nehemiah had left. Because he was a limited human being and it was his time to go home. And when he left, he was gone. And one of the last words of Jesus before he physically left was, he sent us out into the world to proclaim the gospel to all people. And he said, listen, I will be with you to the very end of the age. 
He said, he said, when I go, I will come to you in the person of the Spirit. You will never be alone. I will never leave you, it says in Hebrews, and I will never forsake you. You and I will not be forsaken, but we have to choose to follow him. We have to choose to build the wall. We have to choose to do the things. We have to choose to renew the temple. We have to, we have to choose to renew our own families and to do what's right and to stand up and be set up. Right? We have, to, we have to recognize, we have to support the people around us rather than be squeezed from both sides and allow ourselves to decline in that way. We have to recognize that we have to be reliable. If you and I are not reliable, no one will rely on us. And institutions only thrive in functions and help people when they can be relied upon. And whenever we come into leadership in such a place so that it can thrive, we have to be utterly unyielding to corruption, but totally yielded to the one who can lead us to continual renewal. I know some of this doesn't feel exciting, but listen, in this age, the wrong people get credit for almost everything. But you need to understand that Jesus explicitly said in the Gospel of Luke, that is not going to happen in the age to come. In the age to come, that which was done in darkness will be proclaimed from the rooftops. God knows exactly who ought to get credit for everything, and he will not forget anyone who has done anything in his name. He will credit the person, it says in, I think it's in Matthew's gospel, who gives a cup of cold water in his name. He sees everything that is done that is ordinary, that is reliable, that is loving, that is service to others. He sees it. He remembers it. He will not forget it. And much of what we credit in this life will be utterly forgotten, if not blasphemed. Live for what matters. And you will live for the one who matters. God, as we uh, reflect and close and think about some of these things, help us to, to turn our hearts to things that are wholesome and good. To open our hearts to see the world as it is rather than how flashes of entertainment wish to paint it. Help us to recognize that many of the stories that we're caught up in are things that are beautiful and yet displayed in ways that are not realistic. And that you have called us to be like farmers. You've called us to be like shepherds. People who do ordinary things day in and day out for the life of the world. Help us to, help us to see that as it is. And to have as much of a romance for the marriage as the woman, as much of a romance for the church as for its Christ, so that we're bound together in understanding how we're really meant to thrive and be renewed, so that we can be renewed for 10 generations in this local church, and so we can follow you, our risen Christ, into all the work of renewal you wish to do. We pray in Jesus' name.